0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy, I'm Amy mcafee Olabest. Today we are presenting a four-part series on patriarchy and the LGBTQ community, with the crux being the Supreme Court case Obergefell versus Hodges in 2015, which granted same-sex couples the right to marry and effectively overruled states' rights to prohibit same-sex marriage. My guest is my dear friend and classmate in Stanford's Masters of Liberal Arts program, Matthew Nelson. Hi, Matthew.
1: Hi from Oakland, Amy.
0: I am so deeply honored to be on this journey with you, Matthew. Thank you so much for being here.
1: And there's no one I trust more with the map, compass, and provisions for this journey than you, Amy. (laughs) So thank you for having me here.
0: Thank you. This week's episodes will be a bit different from our prior discussions on the podcast. First, we are devoting an entire episode to our personal stories on this topic, which we wrote in the form of personal essays and will share today. I will share my story first, and then, Matthew, you share yours. My story begins with a quote from the book Fear and Trembling by Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. In this passage, Kierkegaard is talking about the faith of the biblical prophet Abraham. A harder test was reserved for him, and Isaac's fate was placed along with the knife in Abraham's hand. And there he stood, the old man with his solitary hope. But he did not doubt. He did not look in anguish to the left and to the right. He did not challenge heaven with his prayers. He knew it was God the Almighty who was testing him, He knew it was the hardest sacrifice that could be demanded of him. But he knew also that no sacrifice is too severe when God demands it. And he drew the knife. Soren Kierkegaard, Fear and Trembling. In the fall of 2008, my husband Eric and I were living with our four small children in the heart of Silicon Valley, not far from San Francisco, California. Eric had recently finished his MBA at Stanford And one night, he told me that his friend and former classmate, Dane, wanted to come over and talk. Of course he could, I answered. Dane was kind, funny, smart, and didn't seem to mind the kids running around. But I was nervous. The election was getting close. And the air was electric with tension. Every newspaper, every poster-plastered street corner, every conversation sparked with controversy over Proposition 8, a measure which sought to deny same-sex couples the right to marry. Eric and I were Mormon, and we had been asked by our church leaders, whom we had been taught were spokesmen for God himself, to donate our time and money to the Yes on 8 campaign. And so we did. We donated money, we canvassed our neighborhoods, knocking on doors and handing out flyers, and we were planning to vote Yes on 8. We hadn't talked about it with Dane yet, but he knew we were Mormon, And we knew he was gay. Dane showed up on our doorstep with chocolate chip cookies. I let the kids have a couple while we chatted. They were thrilled. It was bedtime. And then I rounded them up and took them to bed, straining my ears to hear what the men were saying in the other room. As Dane left, Eric recounted the conversation, which was indeed the confrontation I had feared. Dane asked Eric point-blank if he was going to vote against same-sex couples' right to marry, and Eric answered honestly that he was. Dane asked him how he could do that, and Eric struggled to find words to explain the reasons we had been taught our whole lives and that we continued to be bombarded with. We were receiving constant emails from family members, friends, and community members, mostly Mormon, but also a slew of forwarded emails from other religious groups detailing the myriad ways in which gay marriage would unravel the very fabric of society. Talking with Dane, though face-to-face, Eric suddenly found those reasons too hurtful and too absurd to say out loud. Instead, he replied dutifully, I guess in the end it's just that we believe that God has spoken on this issue, and we choose to follow God, whether or not we understand and whether or not society understands. Listening to my husband sum up our choice in that way, I felt the familiar rush of righteousness that came when we sang in church, onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war. But that virtuous surety only lasted a second. It faded fast and left me with a dis-ease that made me almost physically ill. Eric told me that Dane had been really hurt, and he told Eric that we were going to find ourselves on the wrong side of history. As I went to bed, I glanced at the kitchen and saw the plate of cookies for us on the counter. All these years later, I am still haunted by those cookies. I wonder what was going through Dane's mind as he prepared that tender offering. I imagine him taking the butter out of the fridge, beating in the sugar and the eggs, planning what he would say, adding the flour, rehearsing his talking points. I picture him taking them out of the oven, choosing a plate, driving over to our house alone, walking up to our door like Queen Esther approaching King Xerxes to plead for the life of her people. I think of what was at stake for him and his community in that election compared to what was at stake for us. I think of our privilege, the straight people with the mighty scepter of historical precedence, institutional might. And voting power in our hands. I see him now as I was not able to see him then. Courageous on our doorstep, bravely saying, like Esther, like Isaac, my fate is in your hands. I see him that way now, strong and generous, extending his offering in a gesture of goodwill that now fills me with shame. He, the one whose civil rights were under attack, gave us the benefit of the doubt, gave us the chance to explain our views, gave us the plate of cookies. The kids and I ate the rest of those cookies the next day, not even thinking about what they had meant to our brave friend. I can't think about it now without weeping. I say we didn't think about what those cookies meant, but that's not true. Eric and I talked about it constantly. I had grown up in an environment where I absorbed a general sense of homophobia that was frequently confirmed at church, and there were no influences counteracting that gradual formation of bias and condemnation. Eric, on the other hand, had been raised in a politically active, explicitly homophobic environment. My upbringing had taught me to hate the sin, but love the sinner. His had taught him to hate the sin and avoid the sinner at all costs. So it was a shock for Eric when early on in his business school program, he attended the student lecture series he and a friend had started. And his friend Mark, whom Eric really liked and respected, chose as his lecture topic, not his impressive pre-business school career, not his athletic endeavors, but instead what it had felt like to realize he was gay. Mark stood in front of his classmates and talked about how scared he had been and that his first thought as a gay teenager was to kill himself. Eric came home from the lecture that night and he cried and cried and cried, considering for the first time in his life what it might feel like to be queer in this world. By the time Prop 8 hit in 2008, we were awakening intellectually as well as socially and emotionally. I remember arguing with my staunchly obedient Mormon mom friends that denying fellow citizens a civil right that we ourselves enjoyed was un-American and that it was unkind, that it was morally wrong. I remember saying that it seemed especially ironic and hypocritical for the descendants of persecuted polygamous Mormons to use the argument that marriage is between one man and one woman to restrict the marriage rights of others. I remember these friends arguing back that this was all about protecting children from being adopted by gay parents. One friend told me that kids would be better off being raised in foster care. Than being adopted by parents who were gay. I remember crying a lot. I couldn't look my non-Mormon friends in the eye, knowing I could never explain why I was going to do something that felt so wrong. I thought often about Abraham, Kierkegaard's knight of faith, who was willing to sacrifice not only his only child, but his obedience to the great commandment, the first divine injunction, thou shalt not kill, Abraham placed his moral code and his conscience on the altar, along with his child. That child who represented the love of his life, the love of his wife's life. Did Sarah even know what Abraham had agreed to do? Isaac was their only chance at the posterity which God had promised would number the stars in the sky, the sands of the sea. It didn't make sense. It was morally indefensible. It would desolate him. But Abraham prepared to do it anyway. It was the ultimate test and Abraham passed. I am Abraham, I repeated as my stomach churned. I am Abraham. So on November 4th, 2008, (laughs) I readied the ropes and sharpened the knife and I took my gay brothers and sisters to Mount Moriah to be sacrificed. I closed my eyes to block out their faces and I prayed with all my heart that an angel would stay my hand, telling me it was okay. I didn't have to do it. My willingness to obey was enough, and I had passed the test. But no such angel came. I voted, along with scores of other Mormons and Catholics and non-religious voters whose motives I can only imagine, and Californians passed Proposition 8 by 52%. For a long time, I really did feel that I had done the right thing, and the more my conscience protested, the more sanctified I felt. If it weren't hard, it wouldn't be a trial of faith, I remember saying over and over. I avoided the gay people I knew, unable to bear the searing guilt I felt when they were invariably so nice to me, despite knowing I was Mormon. Clinging to scripture to combat my remorse, I turned to Genesis and Kierkegaard, But as months and years passed, I found that in place of the peace and confidence that had been promised for passing God's test of obedience, I felt more and more sick. I read the news following the court cases mounting to overturn California's vote. And as most of my Mormon friends clamored that the voice of the people must be upheld, I found myself secretly rooting for the Supreme Court to step in and override California's vote as it had done in the mid-20th century when virulently racist southern states refused to desegregate. It was too late for me to redeem myself, but perhaps it was not too late to revive Isaac. Perhaps the Supreme Court would step in like an angel after all. I remember the day in 2010 when the federal court deemed Proposition 8 unconstitutional, And I also remember the summer day in 2015 when I found my 14-year-old daughter sobbing with joy in her room. And she told me the news that the United States Supreme Court via the case Obergefell v. Hodges had guaranteed marriage equality for all. I marveled at her purity and goodness and I hugged her as we cried. I know that some people will tell me that my story uses too extreme a metaphor. I didn't actually kill anyone. Are you sure? Only nine years earlier, when California was roiling with controversy over Prop 22, which was nearly identical to Prop 8, a 32-year-old gay Mormon man named Henry Stuart Mattis wrote a letter to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints begging them to rethink their position on same-sex marriage. He then drove to his local chapel in Los Altos, California and shot himself in the head On the church steps. His suicide was so effectively hushed that I, living in Utah at the time, never even heard about it. Only after I had helped to pass Prop 8 did I learn that Mattis' suicide had taken place at the very chapel, where I would later gather with my congregation, the chapel where all four of my children were baptized, the chapel where we sing Love One Another, and Onward Christian Soldiers the very chapel where Eric and I reported to receive our Prop 8 canvassing assignments. Did people die under our collective knife again in 2008? Undoubtedly, they did. This knowledge will haunt me for the rest of my life. And even for the queer people who survived Prop 8 physically, I helped to sacrifice their inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Marriage and family was the greatest joy, my church said. But that fulfillment, that joy was not allowed for some of our brothers and sisters. All of that joy, all of that meaning is not for them. When I consider what that would have felt like for Eric and me, if our beloved religion had not only denounced our love, but rallied our beloved community to make sure we could never, ever be married, that would feel in every way like death. I will never be Abraham again. I guess, to be honest, I never was like him in the first place. In Kierkegaard's words, Abraham did not look in anguish to the left and to the right. He did not challenge heaven with his prayers. I did. And I know now that that very anguish, that frantic looking to the left and right, That challenging heaven with my prayers, if anything was God, that was God. That anguish was the divine in me saying, this is not right. If there is a God, God would never ask us to sacrifice another human being's hopes and dreams and love and family on his altar. It was an unholy sacrifice. It was a sacrifice that wasn't mine to make. And I will be sorry for the rest of my life.
1: Thank you for that, Amy. Parker Palmer, a true humanist of our age, author of Healing the Heart of Democracy and the Courage to Teach, wrote, the more you know another person's story, the less possible it is to see that person as your enemy. Toward that end, I hope you will take away truth in the recounting of my story that illuminates the experiences of gay boys and men in the US. Of course, I speak to you, not just as an openly gay man, but also as a Christian, a husband, a teacher and a student, and a cisgender man with flaws. I grew up in central Massachusetts, outside of Worcester, a blue collar city, 40 miles west of Boston. I went to St. John's High School in Shrewsbury. Like many teens, I yearned for meaning and purpose, and the high liturgy of hypocrisies of the Roman church gave way to a more biblicist sect, a kind of neo-Calvinist evangelicalism. After being born again in this church of my high school journey, what I now realize in retrospect was a juggernaut of the worst muscular Christianity and complementarian misogyny, I converted many members of my family. I- ironic, I know, given how you might be able to foresee how that would really backfire on me. I preached in the church and led the youth group. As a teen, I was confident, but also hid a great uncertainty about myself. I knew I did not have the same feelings for girls that many of my peers had. My desire was from, for some of my male friends like my best friend, Nick, starting in the seventh grade. This was something I discovered about myself, something I knew as someone realizes in adolescence that they are taller than others or have natural artistic capacities or athletic abilities. Nothing about this realization was chosen. And I knew at my car, it was something that would always be true of me. Yet the faith I was drawn to condemned my desire as sick and sinful. I loved Jesus, and I loved walking the Christian path, but I also realized that I was becoming what people called gay. I decided to compartmentalize that aspect of my identity. It hurt that I never felt safe to share that with any of my family or friends. Though, I recollect registering moments of contentment and gratitude that at least I could feel and feel so profoundly. Though Those feelings were regularly stigmatized in much of the religious rhetoric of this church I was affiliated with, Bethlehem Bible Church. For instance, when I would hear Mr. Abendroth, the head pastor, preach from Romans 1, that perhaps as if just a passing suggestion when St. Paul refers to the men who, who committed shameless acts with men and receive in themselves the due penalty for their error, he is referring to contemporary gay men contracting HIV-AIDS and dying. I will never forget that wounding moment. In true patriarchal fashion, Mr. Abendroth, with Bible in hand, regularly bullied women and condemned possible careers in his congregation. And my father reinforced these notions at home. Speaking of my father, he forced me into what is now the most conservative Christian college in the nation. But I made the most of the experience, I guess you could say. Even as I was the resident director of a dorm and a TA for two professors, I was comfortable coming out to myself owning the identity label gay. The catalyst for this was a text I read in an ethics class taught by one of the few professors of color at the university. Richard B. Hayes, ethicist at Duke University, revealed a diversity of ethical frameworks in his book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament. The chapter on homosexuality, arguing for the inclusion of LGBTQ people in the church, though opposed to same-sex marriage and queer ordination, was a revelation to me. So I pursued a deep independent study in Christian ethical thought concerning LGBTQ people in the church and queer rights. All this I knew I had to do in utter secrecy. Yes, I even hid my books and articles underneath my dorm mattress so no one would find me out. By the end of that collegiate experience, I was ready to be myself, even if I couldn't come out for fear of retribution. Driven by my love of learning and a calling to teach, I secured a place at Harvard to study the history of religion. Thrilled to be at a university that championed freedom of thought and personal expression, I devoted myself to history, gender and sexuality studies, and politics in the academic study of religion. But it wasn't even before I had my first class of my graduate degree I was spiritually raped. I understand that characterizing the following story as such will be quite controversial, but I haven't found a better way of doing so all these years. I came out to my mother on Christmas day, 2003. I called her to the couch in the basement of my family home and surrounded by books as if foot soldiers in my mission to explain myself clearly I told her that I had one more gift to give her. Perplexed and curious about the books piled high, she insisted I get right to the matter. I disclosed to her that I was gay. She paused. And then she said, but you were always so athletic, so good at soccer. (laughs) And we laughed. And then in a more serious tone, she said, I want to know what God has to say about this. To which I replied, I do too, but it won't be as simple as pointing to a verse in the Bible to sum it up. She then pledged to me that even if her closest friend should turn on her for it, she would never stop loving me. From the first, she assured me of her unconditional love. In the weeks following the new year, 2004, my sister was preparing her wedding to a man she met at a Bible college in Pennsylvania. She requested that I read scripture in the wedding. And I was honored to do so. My father, in typical patriarchal fashion, required the groom from whom she is now divorced to ask him for her hand in marriage. Once granted, my father would hand her off during a traditional ceremony as if she were his property to give away. My mother suggested that I should come out to my sister, convinced she would affirm and love me because of my bravery to do so. My mother was wrong. My sister rescinded her request that I read a Bible passage at her wedding, claiming she wasn't having anyone read the Bible after all, which turned out to be patently untrue, and informed the presiding minister that because I was an openly gay man, I wasn't permitted to be directly involved in the ceremony. Now, let's proceed to the beginning of the summer when I moved into my first apartment with friends before my sister's wedding. I was working a part-time job in Harvard Square, exhilarated to be on the verge of commencing my Master of Divinity degree. One day I received a phone call. It was Mr. Abendroth, the pastor of the church I had left many months before because it was so wildly discordant with my evolving beliefs. His words are indelibly etched on my gray matter. Matt, the pastor who is officiating your sister's wedding, Told me you are living an openly gay lifestyle. What's more, I know your father knows nothing about this. Let me be clear you have two days to tell him about this, or I will. I was enraged. I told him he was abusing his power as a so-called religious authority and that he had no right to force me to come out to my father against my will. He replied, you tell him or I will. And then I hung up the phone. Consequently, I collapsed to the ground and people around me helped me get back to my feet asking if I was okay. This is why I call it spiritual rape. Mr. Abendroth was using his conferred authority as a Christian pastor with this ultimatum to harm me. He was threatening to disclose my truth and without my consent. Religious leaders should never wield personal information as a cudgel to try to gain power over a person or weaken an individual that they now deem an apostate. Mr. Abendroth did this to me. Now in Harvard Yard, I called my father to do what Mr. Abendroth was forcing me to do. Tell him I'm gay at a time I did not choose and under circumstances, I did not believe safe. That agency was taken from me the moment Mr. Abendroth abused his power in classical patriarchal fashion. So I called my father and I told him I'm gay. His answer was, again, things so painful are never forgotten. If you were a murderer or a sexual predator, I would still love you he was equating my forced admission of queer identity with heinous crimes. To date, that is the best I've heard from my father about Mr. Abendroth's odious, perverse, and contemptuous abuse of power. Harvard Divinity School proved to be everything I needed it to be. Not only was it academically enriching, I took classes across the university but it prepared me to teach and live out my queerness through activism. From there, I have devoted my life to teaching. I took my first faculty position in a theology department at a Benedictine Catholic school adjacent to Stanford. For seven years at the Woodside Priory School, I guided students in historical study of religion in order to strengthen interfaith understanding and dialogue. Then, California Catholic Daily published an anonymous hit piece against me, then as the chair of the theology department, and manufactured a very public confrontation between me and the Archbishop of San Francisco, Salvatore Cordelione. At the time, Cordelione was the very face of national religious opposition to marriage equality, and to me, the worst of Roman Catholic patriarchy. The crux of the controversy pertained to my social media advocacy for marriage equality and my opposition to Cordellion for being apprehended for driving while intoxicated. For that, I was the target of this rags animus. To make a long story short, this put my school in an awkward position. And even though parents and students, faculty, and most administrators defended me, the board of directors of the school, monks at St. Anselm College in New Hampshire, who hold the deed to the school's land, decided I must be expelled from the theology department. I could not countenance such discrimination. So I sought new employment. For seven years more, I have taught in the history department at Menlo School. I'm the faculty moderator of Spectrum and Rainbow Clubs, our alliance and affinity groups respectively, and I hope to teach a queer theory class in a couple of years. Through my work with teens, I hope my students see in me a person who cares about them, sees them in all of their beautiful rainbow uniqueness. I especially want to show closeted queer students a world of possibility in their individuality, not beset with the stigma, oppression, and outright bigotry that I encountered from those who claimed to love me most. today, I am married to Robert Kuhn, the love of my life, for a dozen meaningful and fulfilled years. I dedicate this talk to my mother, Denise, who has been unfailing in her love and support, to my husband, who is everything to me, and to you, members of the listening audience, who might have heard something in my story that prompts you to love the LGBTQ people in your life more intentionally.
0: Thank you, Matthew really beyond words. Thank you.